Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Vane. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, 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 hello. Here we are again, and uh, we've got uh, a real treat story of the Royal Norfolk Regiment uh, on the road to Le Paradis. Um, t- t- tell us where we're up to, Gary. Well, when we left uh, the uh, Royal Norfolk Regiment last time, Pete, it was in what was described as the phony war. But now, the real war bursts with awe-inspiring force. Awe-inspiring. Awe-inspiring force on the 10th of May 1940, when the Germans tear up the rule book, as it were, and launched a pile-driving offensive, bypassing the Maginot Line completely, tearing ferociously through neutral Luxembourg and Belgium. Hmm, got a bit of a history for that, haven't they? They have got a history. And naughty, uh, aren't they? Yeah, and so in accordance with Plan D, which we mentioned previously, we were rather intrigued by Plan A, B, and C at the time. I we were. That. Uh, the BAF immediately moves forward to meet them on the dial. Now, the Norfolks, they pack up their kit in double-quick time. Pack up your kit. And they move off to a concentration area at the Forêt de Marchand. Hmm, now, here we've got uh, Ernie Leggett, who'd recently been posted to A Company of the 2nd Royal Norfolk Regiment, and he has an early experience of one of the minor horrors of war, and you're going to be Ernie Leggett. Tell us what you think, Ernie. The field kitchens came out and we were fed. And that's where what we called the hard tack came into being. Hard biscuits that you couldn't eat because it took the roof of your mouth away. They had to be soaked in water, then added to bully beef. And there was a sort of big mash made with a can of beans and everything. What horrors lie behind that word? Everything. We all had a mess tin and you ate this stuff with your spoon. It was just a horrible mess, really. But it filled you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, now perhaps the men were a little bit edgy as they march off to the real war, Pete, and their officers and senior NCOs, they, they try to brief their troops and pass on some of the last words of advice for them. Last words of yeah. advice. It's a bit ominous, isn't it's it? It's a bit ominous, and uh, you're going to be Ernie again of A Company. When darkness had fallen, Captain Barclay, Sergeant Major Gristock, and some of the sergeants came out carrying a hurricane lamp. Uh, he said... 
<laughs> Barclay says, but right ho lads, gather round. I've got something to tell you. We are now at war. As, as we were watching along, you saw the bombers come over. You heard what happened to Orkies, where we've just come from. They tried to bomb us, but fortunately we're here. We beat them. He gave us a fatherly talk. The last words he said were, Now more than ever before, will your training stand you in good stead? Keep your heads down and your spirits high. And from now on, when you aim your rifle to shoot, you shoot to kill. They were ominous words. He then said, The best of luck, men. After that, we just formed up and marched away into the darkness. And uh, the main body of the battalion, uh, they move off at about 1.30 in the morning. Uh, on the 11th of May and you're going to be Sergeant uh, Sergeant so I've demoted you Second Lieutenant D.E. Jones yeah he's with D Company now that wouldn't have been the first time I've been demoted no, either, would it? No. <laughs> well deserved demotions usually Second Lieutenant D.E. Jones the journey was uneventful though rather nerve-wracking because we had been warned that we would inevitably be bombed and machine gunned during our entry into Belgium However, the inevitable, for some unaccountable reason, did not happen. It was at Talevan, I'm not sure how that's said, Talevan, where we debussed <laughs> and we had our first experience of bombing. Just as we were debussing, a Heinkel flew over us at about 7,000 feet. Some mad fool started firing a brain gun at it. Within a few minutes, every gun in the convoy was firing at it, regardless of the fact that it was miles out of range. Well, they just get excited, don't they? But And if one does it, everybody wants it. Oh, I can do it. I'll show that I'm a soldier of great worth too. And you're going to be Private Herbert Limes of the Carrier Platoon Headquarter Company. It was very, very high, really. There was not a hope in hell of hitting it with a Bren gun from that distance. Three or four pieces came from that aircraft and cries went up that they'd hit it. Of course, they hadn't hit it at all. They were four bombs they were dropping. <laughs> they splattered all around us. Now, the, 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 the Heinkel sort of unloads its bombs. Uh, uh, luckily, it didn't do any damage. Everybody's fine. And then it flew off to, to let its friends know <laughs> that what was happening. Uh, what do you imagine the consequences of that would be, Gary? Well, it's inevitable, Pete. The, uh, the Norfolk soon become aware for the first time, really, of the terrifying power of the Stuka dive bombers because they, they're streaming down screaming down screaming down screaming down on the, uh, on the and column and streaming and streaming and you know it wasn't only lucky it was lucidly according to your notes <laughs> yeah yeah that would be uh, <laughs> that would be uh, me uh, mm, I, that would be I, lucky I'm at all time lucid now you're going to be private Ernie Furrow he's, he's already becoming one of our friends and favourites is, isn't he, he? Is and he's of the Pioneer Section HQ company and what does he say Pete it wasn't only the bombs and the machine guns that was frightening, but they all had this siren attached to them. When they dive-bombed you, this noise went right through your brain. Much worse than the bombs and machine guns. We tried to put our fingers in our ears to, to stop the noise getting through. And, and everyone, all, I mean, we remember from the South Knots of Zars in the desert, the scream of the sirens of the Stukas was awful. It just unnerved people. So, so the, the battalion takes up its defensive posts. Uh, they're, they're a sort of advance guard on the south bank of the River Dal, uh, round about the Bois de Tombique. Uh, now, the river's a good, <laughs> good anti-tank obstacle, I suppose, and soon they're, uh, they're, uh, 
they're well wired in uh, and they've also got some pretty good Belgian pillboxes and and they've got some semi-dug trenches that, that you can occupy but in front of them is Captain Barclay and A Company, who, who are given the honour, <laughs> the honour <laughs> of being the sort of outpost role. So they're across the dial, the other side of the dial, and, and in fact they're several miles, several miles west of the main line. And you're going to be Captain Peter Barclay of A Company. My orders, basically, in brief, were give him a bloody nose, old boy, and then pull out. There was a small chateau in the area of my company position and a garden party going on. There was a maypole with children whirling round and Madame exercising her role as hostess superbly. She was horrified when I told her we were going to have to dig trenches in and around her garden. She said, as long as you don't upset the rose bushes and don't interfere with the rhododendrons, I suppose I can't stop you. Anyhow, the party went on and we dug our trenches in amongst it all. I had... A slit trench position based on the platoon. Two platoons up and one platoon back. They had a very good field of fire from jolly good concealed positions, which we were able to prepare quite quickly and camouflage over a vital finale. Now, it's quite interesting because I actually know that... uh but perhaps when people can meet you in the pub, they can ask you about uh, you taking up a concealed position in uh, a, a rhododendron bush uh, near the officer's mess. The whole story, perhaps, they'd like. Uh, no, we'll skip straight past that. I oh. was just wondering if uh, the field of fire they'd set up included the children and the maypole. Well, it would do if we were setting it up. You love children. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Now, uh, as they're, they're, so they're in these positions, and, 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 and the, the remnants, if you like, of the Belgian army are falling back. And how do you think they're feeling, those Belgian soldiers, as they're falling back? Well, they're clearly going to be demoralised. They're clearly going to be a bit tired, bedraggled. And uh, you're not only going to be getting the, the Belgian soldiers, you're going to start getting refugees, aren't you? Civilians, Civilians. are going to start to flood back. Um, against the soundscape of the ever-increasing thunder of the German artillery. Blimey, blimey. And then finally, of course, so you get a, f- a few stragglers, and then you get a load and then of soldiers, then you get a load of refugees, and then uh, who would turn up last? Oh, that'll be the Germans. Oh, dear. And you're going to be Captain Peter Barclay again. He- he's a real hero of this tale. The vanguard of their advance guard consisted of motorbikes and sidecars with machine guns mounted on the sidecars. We let them get jolly close because we wanted to get as many as we could. I think the leading one was only about 150 yards away. We knocked out about four or five of these and in fact none of the first batch got back to report. But it obviously didn't take long before the follow-up troops smelt a rat and we were subjected to a great deal of heavy mortar and artillery fire. We were there about four or five hours, then darkness fell and we had orders to pull out and cover the bridge blowing party after we'd crossed over. Ooh, so they're going to blow the bridges over the dial. So they fall back from their advance post in front of the dial, back across the dial, and then from there cover the people who are blowing the bridge. Now, one of those who's involved with that is uh, our old friend, and indeed he was a great bloke, uh, Private Ernie Farrow. Now, he was with, as I said, the pioneer pioneer section, and he's, of course, very much involved in this. And he says this, The Royal Engineers were the people who mined nearly all the bridges, but were told that they hadn't mined this particular one. 
Therefore, it was a pioneer's duty to go out and do this job. We took our gun cotton with us. That's the explosives. We wanted to blast this particular joint on each side of the bridge. This would cause the bridge to fall down. The gun cotton you can tie on with a piece of string. It's very technical, this. If you mm. don't understand it, just speak up. I will do. We tied it round and around the best way we could. It was as simple as that. You put the primer and the detonator in. We had an electric wire and batteries, so we ran out our wire back about two or three hundred yards back from the bridge. The man who was in charge would have the battery in his pocket or his haversack. No one else would touch that. This was done by Lance Corporal Mason, who was in charge of our section at the time. A pair of wires down one side, a pair of wires on the other, directly to where he was. Then, <laughs> they'd then be attached together. And at the point when we got to blow it up, he'd just touch it onto the small battery. We didn't get shot at, so they, they couldn't have seen what we were doing. That means the Germans. This was a risk that we took. While we were doing this, the artillery had orders to cover us, more or less. So whenever there was a tank approaching the bridge, the artillery blasted them. After we'd left, Lance Corporal Mason blew the bridge. We weren't there. He was on his own. We heard the explosion, and he came back and reported that the bridge was gone. Quite exciting stuff, and there'd be quite a lot of this. It's always interesting fact, when do you blow a bridge? If you leave it too late... It's, it's too late. It's quite interesting. So where are they going? What's happening to the Norfolks? Where are they going? Where, 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 where? Well, they move back into uh, Divisional Reserve and they take up new positions behind the Bois de Beaumont, which is above the village of Wav. We've heard of Wav before. We have, yeah. Cockpit of Europe. It's uh, Waterloo time again. And that's on the 12th of May. Yeah, and, and by, by the there. 14th of May, it's obvious that the Belgian army's doomed. Doomed! Doomed, I tell you, Gary! And it's hoped that the dial line would prove the rock which broke the power of the German attack. Yeah, yeah. So they settled down. They're settling down for a prolonged defensive action. But then, <laughs> there's, on the 15th of May, there are several serious German attacks along the whole of the dial front. Um, now, um, they're still confident that they can hold. Uh, but uh, they're, they're absolutely astonished. Astonished when late on the 15th of May, they get orders to withdraw right back to positions in front of... Um, what's that village called? I've forgotten. Overseigh. Overseigh. Um, now, uh, wh- why are they withdrawing that the lines holding on the dial? So why are they falling back, Gary? Why? Why are they falling back? And that's what the soldiers themselves would have asked on the, t- on the day. Well, the reason's uh, a, a tremendously successful... German blitzkrieg attack further south, which had actually smashed through the French lines on the Meuse between uh, Namur Namur. Sedan. Namur. Namur Namur and Sedan. And that's already sweeping round behind the British lines, which would separate them from the remaining French forces. How come you can say over and you can't say Namur? <laughs> I can say Namur. I just oh, yeah. didn't want to. Oh, I see. Yeah, but I, I was impressed by how you said. What was that village called again? Yeah, <laughs> Overysay. <laughs> I have no idea how you pronounce it. Now, um, so uh, so 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 they've got to fall back because because otherwise they'll get cut off. Um, and uh, th- 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 this is the first of many withdrawals, isn't it? There's going to be lots of these. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, over the next few days, it, it becomes. Uh, sadly, all too familiar for the BEF as they begin to retreat back towards the uh, French frontier. Now, what does uh, Captain Peter Barclay say about how they carried out these uh, withdrawals? Because they do it quite cleverly, don't they? Yeah, Captain Peter Barclay says this. We never, ever carried out a withdrawal in contact. 
If we thought that was likely, we patrolled very offensively against enemy positions before we pulled out, gave them something to think about, and then extricated ourselves without fear of interference. We never once were molested in our withdrawal, which I was thankful about, because nearly always I was a rearguard company, and you had a horrible sort of feeling getting one in the pants as you were coming out. It's awful, this business of withdrawal and extricating yourself. Yes. <laughs> getting one in the pants. What's going on? I tell you, there's a curse on the house of Barclay. <laughs> anyway, um, the, 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 so the, the, the roads that they marched along, they're so happy, we marching along on the Christopher Wave. That well, means... they certainly were in high spirits just a few days before. But it, uh... They're now covered in evidence of defeat. And this is Private Ernie Farrow, we, uh, headquarter company again, Pioneer Section. He said this, there were lines, and this isn't funny, is it? It's terrible. There were lines and lines of these poor old people with prams, wheelbarrows, horses and carts, some with a cow, some with a couple of pigs, trying to drive these down the road. You can just imagine with our big lorries coming down the Belgian roads, which are only narrow, what a problem we had. Uh, now, who could make this worse? Who well, could... <laughs> the Luftwaffe, frankly. It's bad enough as it is, but they decide to, uh, to try to smash the fighting strength of the BF in any way that they could. Their tactics were logical, but they're brutal in the extreme. And this is Ernie Farrow again. He says, as soon as we started to withdraw again, three of the Stokers came over. Now, they took no notice of us. We dived out the lorries because we were expecting them to blow us to hell. But they didn't. They simply went over the top of us and disappeared in the trees. We heard the machine guns. We heard the sirens. We heard the bombs dropping. Now, on our left flank, we had the Belgian army, and we naturally thought they'd gone after them. But after we'd driven down the road three or four miles, we found what they'd done. They'd come over us, left us, but to stop us, they'd machine-gunned and bombed these poor refugees. This was a massacre. All along the road were people who'd been killed with no arms, no heads. There were cattle lying about dead. There were little tiny children. There were old people. Not one or two people, but hundreds of them lying about in the road. This was absolutely a massacre. We couldn't stop to clear the road because we knew that this is what they, it was done for, to make us stop and the Germans would have surrounded us. We had to drive our lorries over the top of them which was really heartbreaking for us, but we couldn't do anything about it. That's, that's, that's terrible, isn't it? It's and, terrible. And there's, there's just destruction all around them. And, 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 and uh, Private Ernie Leggett of A Company says this, The devastation of the villages and towns we walked through, they'd just been brought to the ground. There was water and smoke, fires in the street. I can still remember that terrible smell of death after a bombing or shelling had occurred. People were in these houses. They hadn't been taken out, and, and there was still that horrible stench we, which we had to go through. Of course, there was desolation everywhere. As we went past some woods, all the trees had been uprooted. The tops had been shelled away. It was like walking through hell. Blimey. Yeah. Now, as the retreat goes on, uh, a lack of sleep begins to take its toll, and the men were were utterly knackered, Pete, frankly. Well, they would be, wouldn't they? Aerial attacks are made against villages and towns in front of the, the German advance, ensuring maximum misery for civilians caught up in the uh, the maelstrom of modern warfare. And Ernie Leggett goes on to say this. We marched 25 to 30 miles in the darkness. That that in itself is, yeah. a, is a lot, isn't it? People say that you can't march 
march while you're asleep. Well, I can tell you here, here and now, you can march while you're asleep because I've done it and all my company did it. The only time you wake up is when you bump into the man ahead of you or the man behind you bumps into you. Marching along asleep in the dark. I'm not sure. I mean, it's just dozing off fitfully, you know, just a bit. I don't think he means you know, fast out but you're just dozing off and no but to be so tired i mean the 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 extremes of of everything and that's just another extreme isn't it it is isn't it just stress exhaustion all wow um and uh, it must especially i mean who would it affect most of all if you think well, some about of the it? older officers and uh, it, it was uh, really quite understandable that colonel de wilton wilton he falls ill and uh, he has to be invalided home on the 17th of May. Who's he replaced by then? Well, his second-in-command, Major Charlton, replaces him. And uh, now still the Norfolks continue to fall back until the late evening of the 20th of May, and uh, they were ordered to make a stand along the Escalt Canal. Escalt Canal. It's another one of these names that crops up. There's a lot in, 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 in these things. And you're going to be Captain Peter Barclay again of A Company. We took over from a battalion of the Royal Berkshire Regiment and strengthened and improved the positions during the course of the night. These were on a fairly wide front. The battalion had a very long front to contend with, and so of course my company front was also long, about seven or eight hundred yards, which was a lot for a company in close country. There were buildings on our side of the canal, and there was a plantation on the enemy side, so we had to have a pretty effective system of crossfire. My company preparations were completed during the hours of darkness. I went round and they were jolly well camouflaged too. Some were in the cellars with sort of loopholes just under the roofs, one lot hiding behind a garden wall with loopholes, well concealed positions which gave good cover of the frontage I was responsible for. Well, his company is in the centre, isn't it? Uh, centre of the line. He's got D Company on his left and B Company on the right. C Company is in reserve. Uh, now this position, it's, it, it's got some strengths, hasn't it? What, what would you say were the strengths it had as a position? It reminds me a bit of Mons, but uh... yeah, yeah. I mean, these are natural um, uh, strengths. They they were protected, as as it were, from the tanks by the canal. So that's a great anti-tank obstacle, you're yeah. saying. Yeah, and the bridges had been blown, as we mentioned earlier. So it's, even so, what's the problem? Though? The there troops, is a problem, isn't yeah, there? They're too thinly spread, as Captain Barclay references. It's quite a wide front, and they're too thinly spread out to withstand any sort of sustained attack. And you're going to be Ernie Leggett again. I love Ernie Leggett. He says this, My section took over a building which presumably had been an old cement factory. The roof was off, but we were able to get up on a veranda in the second floor, fairly high. We got what mud, mud, wood and material we could. We just shoved it up so that we were covered to a certain extent. We were very much concealed you notice yeah. I didn't say anything when you got the word wood wrong well you often get the wood inappropriately so I'm glad that for once you didn't now as morning breaks on the 21st of May having satisfied himself of the thoroughness of his company's defensive preparations yeah. uh, Captain Barclay demonstrates an impressive sang-froid oh <laughs> Or Sang Freud. <laughs> Sang Freud is brilliant. Now, Captain Peter Barclay says this. My Batman reported that he'd seen some black rabbits in the park of a chateau. Oh, no, he's not hunting again, is he? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, this bloke's crackers. In the grounds of which some of my positions were. Not only that, 
but he'd found some ferrets and retrievers shut up in the stables. So he thought, we'd get in a bit of sport before the fun began. I had a shotgun with me, and we popped those ferrets down a big warren. We were having a rare bit of sport as rabbits bolted out of these burrows when after about an hour and a half, the shelling started along the river line generally. We came in for a certain amount of this, and we thought, well, we'd better pack in and deal with the other situation. So back we went to company headquarters. <laughs> That's quite astonishing, really. Well, so from, uh, from hunting bunny rabbits to hunting Germans, and uh, some of his hunting skills come in valuable here because he really lures the Germans in, doesn't he? Tell us what happens. After a few more hours, the Germans appeared on the far bank. They were totally oblivious of our presence in the immediate vicinity. I told my soldiers on no account to fire until they heard my hunting horn. A German officer appeared and got his map out and appeared to be holding an O group with his senior warrant officers. Then they withdrew into the wood and we heard a lot of chopping going on and saw the tops of trees flattening out. What they were doing was cutting down young trees to make a long series of hurdles to lay over the top of the blitzed bridges which was in the middle of my sector. Eventually they emerged from this plantation with a number of long hurdles and they proceeded to lay these across the rubble and remains of concrete blocks in the canal. We kept quiet and they still had no idea we were there. I reckoned we'd wait until there was as many as we could contend with on our side of the canal before opening fire. There were SS with black helmets and they started to come across and were standing around in little groups waiting. When we'd enough, about 25, I blew my hunting horn. Then, of course, all the soldiers opened fire with consummate accuracy and disposed of all the enemy personnel on our side of the canal and also the ones on the bank at the far side, which brought the hostile proceedings to an abrupt halt. Uh, I mean, that's just quite cunning of them, really, just uh, maximising the killing, uh, the killing effort. Uh, once, uh, what happens when they reveal themselves, though? What would the Germans do then? Well, they're going to retaliate, aren't they? Let's face it, the Germans always do, and they retaliate very hard. Now, so does that mean they attack with infantry, or do they use something else? No, before they commit any more troops to the attack, they uh, they seek to stand back, and they use their superior firepower to uh, materially weaken the defences. So just to... to, to, to it's a firefight and to, to try and blast the British out. So what does Barclay say? Then, of course, we came in for an inordinate amount of shelling and mortar fire. After the initial burst of fire and their enormous casualties, they knew pretty well where we were. Their mortar fire was very accurate. Not so long after, I was wounded in the guts, back and arm. I had a field dressing put on each of my wounds. We'd had several casualties and all the stretchers were out. My Batman, with great presence of mind, ripped a door off its hinges and in spite of my orders to the contrary, tied me to this door. He wouldn't take any orders from me then, except to go where I told him to go. There I was, tied to this door, and I said, Right, well now you've got to take me round on this door. You've not only got my weight to contend with, but the door as well. Of course, that took four people, and they took me round to deal with a very threatening situation. So what he's doing is being carried round, badly wounded from, <coughs> from point to point in his line, which is quite a lot, you know, he's, it, 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 it's a, he's a brave chap, isn't he? He really is. And, uh, and but also, the four chaps who have to carry this door are pretty brave. I mean, if it wasn't for the situation that they're in, it's almost comic, isn't it, that he's tied to this door? Well, it, it is almost surrealistic but yeah. there you go and you're going to continue with the story 
Suddenly, we were fired on by Germans from our side of the canal, so I had to deplete my small reserve to deal with this. I put my sergeant major, Gristock, in charge of this small force, which was about ten men, including a wireless operator, a company clerk, and various other personnel from company headquarters. They were not only to hold my right flank, but deal with a German post that had established itself not very far off on my right. He placed some of his men in position to curtail the activities of the post so effectively that they wiped them out. <laughs> That'll curtail their activities. While this was going on, fire came from another German post on our side of the canal. Gristock spotted where this was, and he left two men to give him covering fire. He went forward with a tommy gun and grenades to dispose of this party, which was in position behind a pile of stones on the bank of the canal itself. When it was about... 20 to 30 yards from this position, which hadn't seen him, he was spotted by another machine gun post on the enemy side of the canal. They opened fire on him and raked him through, smashed both his knees. In spite of this, he dragged himself till he was within grenade lobbing range, then lay on his side and lobbed the grenade over the top of this pile of stones, belted the three Germans, turned over, opened fire with his tommy gun and dealt with a lot of them. So in fact, with that heroic display of his and the good work done by the rest of that tiny little party, the two enemy groups that crossed the canal were disposed of. Then the reserve company of my own battalion came up and made good the right flank. Then I think I passed out. That's an amazing story of two heroes, is it? Barclay and Gristock. Now, uh, Gristock, uh, he, he gets a... George v- Gristock. George Gristock, he gets a VC for that action. Victoria Cross. And uh, I think it, it's generally considered to be a well, well-deserved one. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, now, both both Gristock and Barclay are evacuated with severe wounds, but behind them, the fighting's raging on, and the Norfolks seem to be holding their own, although at very high cost. People being hit, yeah. And you're going to be Ernie Leggett again. We saw the Germans coming at us through the wood, and they also had light tanks. We let them have... All we'd got, firing at Bren guns, rifles and everything. I was on the Bren gun, firing from the cover of these old benches, tables and God knows what, on this veranda. We killed a lot of Germans. They came almost up as far as the river and we really gave them hell and they retreated. They attacked us again. (coughs) And the tanks were coming over their own dead men. To us that was repulsive and we couldn't understand why they did that. That's funny because they'd done it. They'd done it in the lorries, yeah. We put them back. Again, we just fired at them. They, were, they weren't the heavy tanks. There was no bridge near me, so they couldn't get across the river. We managed to keep them on their side. They attacked us three times, and three times we sent them back. We were being shelled by their artillery, but the mortars were the things which were causing the damage. It was just terrible, just terrible. You can more or less hear the thing sort of pump off, and the next thing you know, there's an explosion. Out of my section in the end, there was myself, two of the privates, and a lance corporal. Wow. And then there's a strange lull, isn't it? I mean, why do lulls happen in battles? Well, neither of us have any experience. But they do, don't they? They do, and they happen in the most tumultuous of battles. And all along the battalion frontage, the surviving officers and NCOs seek to check their flanks for German interlopers. And Ernie Leggett goes on to say this, Pete. The Lance Corporal said to me, Ernie, nip across, see if the bastards are penetrating on our left flank. I left my rifle and walked across the floor of this second-storey building. The next thing I knew, I'd hit the ceiling. <laughs> Blown up. Then I heard a loud bang. I then came down and hit the floor. <laughs> I realised that I'd been hit. It was one of those blasted mortars. 
we got no roof. It had come down, hit the concrete floor, and that was it. I'd been it. My left leg was absolutely numb. I was bleeding all over the place. My back was numb from the waist downwards. I couldn't move my legs, and all I saw was the blood coming round on the floor. It must be awful. It must be. Now, Leggett, he had multiple minor wounds, but the most serious one was inflicted by a solid piece of shrapnel about three and a half inches long by an inch and a half wide, which had ripped through his left buttock and exited via his groin tearing a huge hole that was gaping wide and and spilling out his life's blood i mean but, can you imagine the weight and, and the impact of that bit of shrapnel because they're so heavy aren't they oh anyway this is what ernie leggett says my pals they got there and my field dressings we only had one each it was no Good, just try tying them round. It was insufficient, so they banged one into the wound at the back, pushed it up, put another one into the wound at the front, and they tied the other two on the outside. Then they got a piece of rope and tied a tourniquet. I was bleeding a lot. Fortunately, I was numb. I had, I had no pain. That's the amazing thing about it. I just thought of my home and family and what they were going to do when they heard the news. Things like that go through your mind. Because he'd have presumed he was dying, to be honest. And by the way, you're not supposed to use your field... You're supposed to use only your own field dressing. You're not supposed to use your mates. Yeah, and I, and I just thought, you know, when he said he had no pain, I just thought, I bet you got some pain later. Oh, I bet he It did. must have been incredibly painful. Now, they carry him downstairs and they drag him out uh, and then they and then return because they've got to they've got to be back at their posts so Leggett was left alone to crawl alongside the railway line towards the company headquarters and once more you're going to be private Ernie Leggett I am and he's really suffering by this well I mean he's got, um, the pain must be starting I suppose but I crawled and crawled they'd taken my trousers off all I'd got was a rough pair of pants rough old pair of pants and battle dress top meantime they were bombing from above i was being covered with earth everything and god knows what as i was crawling along i was conscious that my fingernails had been worn down so that they were bleeding my hands were bleeding pulling myself along it was determination to get away like a wounded animal it took me ages it was about 100 120 yards away from our headquarters i was almost at my last gasp and there was one hell of a big explosion. I was covered with earth and I said, please God help me. I don't know how long I was out, but then I remember my hands and arms were being tugged. I heard someone say, bloody hell, it's Ernie. I looked up into the faces of two bandsmen. They'd taken the job of stretcher bearers, Lance Corporal John Woodrow and a chap named Bunt Bloxham. They pulled me out and I heard them talking. Bloody hell, he's had it. Wow. Um, I mean, how graphic is that? You know, the damage that he was doing to even to his fingernails, just crawling along, pulling his body weight along. Well, he presumably had no. He, he didn't have any in his legs to no, push him. No. So it just oh. that is incredibly graphic. Now, so uh, he got to. So he's taken to the first aid place, and 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 uh, that's where Captain Barclay and his company sergeant major George Gristock. They're also there, of course, with severe wounds. And you're going to be Barclay again. The next thing I remember, I was in the first aid post with my company sergeant major, who was in a very bad state, but not too bad to appreciate some jellyfied brandy pills we were both given, and that cheered him up no end. They were delicious. And very, very welcome. I was evacuated from the regimental aid post to a larger medical rendezvous. 
I had a little dog who wouldn't leave me, a darling little black mongrel, and she was lying on the top of me, preventing anybody getting near me. Then they cut off my trousers, and my little dog was so concerned that they had to put a bag over her and take her away. I never saw her any more. It was too awful. And this this is quite strange, but it's so typical that there's almost more suffering about, and, and well, no more more anguish about the fate of the little dog than the fate of all these people who are dying all around. And it is a, a, a peculiar, not perhaps a peculiarity of the British psyche, I think. It's common everywhere, but it, it is interesting the way that dogs seem to catch the emotions. Uh, your mm. Fred, for instance, often catches your emotions when he uh, lets rip. He catches everybody's emotions then. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, behind them, the, the, the Norfolks are, are fighting on and the situation was stabilised by the end of the day. Major Charlton, the acting CO, had been evacuated wounded and Major uh, Lyle Ryder took over in his stead. This is a rapid promotion in these times of war, isn't it? Yeah. It's hardly surprising. Yeah. That night, the sporadic firing, it sort of disturbs, you know, it, 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 it again, it, people don't, it just prevents you from sleeping. People are getting more and more tired. And, and then what, next day, do you think the Germans allow them to have perhaps a morning snooze? No, there's no relief as the German mortars and snipers continue to pick away at the, the dwindling strength of the battalion. Nevertheless, the Norfolks held on until midnight on the 22nd of So they hold that all that day? They do. Uh, and they, at that point, they receive orders to pull back to the Gort line. Which is, that's the one near the, the border, isn't it? That yeah. we talked about, the, the building. Uh, th- does it go smoothly? I mean... Well, yeah, these, the disengagement's carried out smoothly. They retreat. But uh, hampered as before by the teeming refugees. Yeah, refugees... Uh, that's uh, just a natural problem. It's very difficult. Uh, what, what, what were happening to them? Where were they going to? Well, they, the battalions placed in divisional reserve, uh, but uh, unfortunately any thoughts they might have had of, of getting a rest were cruelly dashed, Pete. Why? Well, well they were ordered almost immediately to take up positions along the La Bassie Canal in front of the village of Le Paradis. Now there, they're going to. I, I realise well, this. This is this is now facing the German Panzer divisions that had swept round from to the west of the BEF that that had broken through the French line, uh, and it's threatening to cut off the whole line of retreat to the Channel ports. Really, isn't it? Um, so what were the Norfolk's to do? They're, I suppose they're just holding the line, aren't they? Well, on the, the early morning, twenty fifth of May, they arrive, and uh, and the tired veterans of just fifteen days. So they're veterans of fifth, a couple yeah, of weeks. That already seems an eternity. Well, it must have done, mustn't it? I mean, each every day must have stretched out in front of them, uh, uh, seeing their comrades die and everything. So, what are they doing on the on the along the? Uh, they're sort of waiting. They've got to hold the line for as long as possible. So what, what do they do? I suppose they're digging in, aren't they? They're digging in, all the usual preparations. They prepare slip trenches for one final stand. And rather ironically, they're facing west, Pete, the opposite way to the lines that uh, their fathers would have held on the Western Front in 1914-18. Rami, uh, they, 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 they sort of travelled a long road to paradise, if you say, Le Paradis is the name of the village. Uh, and, and then... Well, there's a terrible fate for, for, for many of them lurking in the future. This is, uh, this is, the next episode will, will truly be a terrible episode uh, uh, because it's the La Parody Massacre. Um, well, that, that's a, it's a short episode today, but I think it's, it, it, it's, quite, it's quite... The fighting is just so intense, isn't it, that you can't take too much of it. 
Well, I think it's very powerful when, you know, you hear in their own words some of the graphic descriptions that they give. Uh, you know, pulling yourself back and, and by your fingernails is just just going to stay with me. Yeah. And, and, and the courage of men like... Well, the courage of all of them, or most of them, I presume, but the, the courage of men like... Grist, George Gristock, um, rewarded with a V, rewarded with a, a posthumous VC because he does die in hospital back in England. But um, Barclay, badly wounded, uh, Leggett, badly wounded, and the rest of them facing the Germans. It's a, it's, a, it's a terrible business. If you want to read more about them, I did write a book about the Norfolks, which I can't remember the title of, but uh, I'll put the uh, cover up on the thing. Uh, but this has been, it's been quite chastening for, for uh, two, two people who like to think we're funny. That's why our wives say we're not as funny as we think we are. Uh, but uh, it's, but, Yeah, oh, sorry, Gary, you are as funny as you think you are. Yes. Um, but... Uh, I've I've found this uh, an interesting episode to do. Yeah, it's it's certainly uh, setting the scene, and and you know, it, it once more it it's it's an infantry regiment at war, isn't it? It's different from. I mean, the South Dots are suffered. In fact, they were wiped out, but at one point, but the, it's not as relentless in some ways as these these infantry actions, and not as not as up close and personal, is it? No. Well, there we go. See you, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?